Welcome to the Church's Changing Podcast. I'm Paul Nixon. I'm here with my friend Mike Bachman. Mike works with the Board of Higher Education and Ministry of the United Methodist Church in the field and focus of innovation. That's right. Which is right up your sleeve. Um, you've been working <laughs> in the innovative space for quite a while, and you spent quite a few years as pastor of Union Coffee in Dallas. Yeah. How many years was that? I served officially in that role for about nine years from kind of like prep before we launched to actual launch of it. And they are actually celebrating their 10th anniversary of being open this Saturday. Wow. Which is pretty great. It's pretty amazing. We're going to have a heck of a party. How long have you been with the board? So I've been at GBHM for about a year and a half now, just shy of that. Okay. So that gives you a little space to look back and to reflect on a very interesting chapter. Yeah. You wrote a book a few years ago called Flipping Church, where you were reflecting on what you were learning in that season from that work and from others that were doing some interesting things. But it's a, it's good to be able to reflect with you as you are a little bit distant now from that project to talk about where church is going. Yeah. What we're learning. Yeah. You know, it's a good place to be. And it's really incredible to be a part of one of the general agencies of the Methodist Church because it gives me now this ability to kind of connect in and see what's happening literally around the world in, in the church. And it's pretty exciting to gain that additional perspective after having served in such a very specific context um, and developing a church for a very specific place. So it's pretty exciting. I like it. Yeah, you went from a focus on a few zip codes to a a planet, basically. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I, I had any sense of just how critical the general agencies of the Methodist Church were to holding together the worldwide denomination, and a couple of them really play a critical role in that. And GBHM is one of them. Well, to kind of roll back time ten years, back to yeah. to when Union Coffee began, where did you all get that idea to develop a church whose venue was a coffee shop? So initially, it was really a bunch of late night conversations between myself and two other folks, Neil Mosley and Phil Dickey. And we knew we wanted to, to come up with a concept of, how, of starting a church that was generationally specific. All three of us had served in various ministry roles, particularly with emerging generations. And we found that as we would develop you know, new ministries that would connect with folks in their 20s who weren't connecting with traditional expressions of church, we would hit some really great success early on. And then some folks in the church who are a bit more established would find themselves maybe uncomfortable with ways that that was being done, whether it was the approach we were taking, whether it was meeting in a bar, whether it was like whatever the case might be. And then the rug would be pulled out from under us. And so we wanted to figure out like, how could we do generationally specific ministry? But along with that came the realization that if we did ministry with a bunch of folks in their twenties, you know, paying the bills would be a challenge. Because <laughs> this isn't a group with a lot of disposable income, despite what some folks might want to say. And so we started looking at the social enterprise. And as we explored different possibilities, really, the notion of a coffee shop came up again and again as something that would naturally feed into the mission of what we were trying to accomplish, while also hopefully providing a stable revenue stream. You know, we didn't want it to be... I look at churches that have alternative revenue streams, especially with, you know, kind of this long view now of having done that work for a long time and consulted with lots of different groups, is that there's a difference between like a side hustle and a true social enterprise. And the working in a coffee space as we were developing ministry with folks in their 20s felt like true social enterprise as opposed to like a side hustle that would produce some revenue. So that's going to be where we landed. So the social enterprise helped 
to advance some of the work of the ministry itself. Absolutely. As opposed to just, it wasn't a fundraiser, basically, is what you're saying. Right. Right, 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 right. Dave Browning, he was the pastor of a interesting non-denom church up in Washington State, author of Deliberate Simplicity. He reflected probably, I don't know, 10 years or so ago with me about coffee shops, that they're even harder to plant than churches. At the very least, you you have to know what you're doing in both on both fronts. I mean, you, you can't just... A person like me would be ill-advised to just go out and start a coffee shop this afternoon because I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I connect with that. I used to joke, especially in our first couple of years of anniversary celebrations, that, you know, something like 70% of small businesses don't make it a whole year and... Like 30% of nonprofits don't make it a year and 40% of church plants don't make it a year. So we had like a 140% chance of failure, but here we were. And uh, I like the the fact that I wasn't great at math. (laughs) And I know that's not quite how it works, but but it it is difficult. And one of our early managers, she used to say, running a coffee shop is kind of like writing the great American novel. Everyone thinks it's a great idea, but it's really hard. And <laughs> she was right about that. It is it is difficult. And I definitely advise against those to just step into it, looking to Starbucks and saying, well, Starbucks makes all this money. Clearly, it's an obvious model. And, and it's not. Starbucks has a lot of competitive advantages, and they produce scientifically questionable coffee. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's a whole... <laughs> I can, that's a different podcast, but I could break that down in about seven minutes, how you know that it's questionable. Yeah, I mean, the coffee industry is really competitive and it's challenging, but it also provides a natural space for people to gather and a way to connect in with a community. And the Venn diagram of what a coffee shop does and what a church does at its best, there's a lot of overlap between those two. So we really wanted to kind of lean into those spaces of overlap. Well, if you did the math in a kind of a glass more than half empty way with the, the percentage of coffee shops that fail and the percentages of churches that fail and put it together, it would seem like your, your, your chances of failure are increasing when in fact, I'm guessing that you experienced synergy between the two poles of your work that actually helped you on both sides. We did, but it took us a long time to figure out how to do that well. We struggled with our identity early on. And it took years to truly get a a deeper sense of how those two things work together in harmony. I mean, I remember some early board members and others asking, so is this like a coffee shop that a church meets in? Or is it like a church that runs a coffee shop? And I gave a really unsatisfying answer for a while. Like, yes. Um, (laughs) And and eventually, Neil Mosley was very helpful in coming with the initial concept of what if unions kind of like a bicycle, where the driving wheel that gives us energy and power is the coffee shop operations and the guiding wheel that gives us mission and purpose is, is our identity as a church. And that was really helpful. And then over the course of years, we started to figure out what does that frame look like that connects those two wheels? And, and I think that's the big challenge that a lot of folks don't figure out. As I know of churches that run coffee shops, I know of coffee shops that host like community events and things like that. But what really set Union apart and that we've been able to help other church and nonprofit organizations that adopt social enterprise figure out is how do you construct a frame that holds those two things together? And that intentional structure makes all the difference in the world. Because then they really do start working together and the success of one fuels the success of the other and vice versa. Along the journey of Union, you wrote a book entitled Flipping Church, excellent book, 
what was the aha or the surprise or what was going on with the ministry that caused you to want to write that book at that point? I mean, it was that I think we were at the point that we had finally started to figure some things out that really seemed worth sharing with part of it. But I also was at a gathering for other United Methodist church planners who were doing creative or innovative work in different ways. Right, I was sitting around a table and Jerry Hershitz from After Hours in Denver was there and Christian and Trey from Urban Village Church were there and then Amanda Garber from Rise was there. And like we had this this gathering of folks and, and as I was sitting there I realized like all of these folks broke the rules somehow of church planning. That, you know, we would attend all these conferences and learn this is how you plan a church and, and all of us had at least one really big rule that we fundamentally just threw out the window. And attributed most of our success to the fact that we broke that rule. And so it just led me to be really interested in like, well, if we want people to breathe a bit deeper and think broader about what church could be, what would it look like to capture these stories of folks who did just that and, and get them out there so that folks see that like there can be success? Because especially at the time that Things like UVC and After Hours and Us and Rise and, and a bunch of others, Village Church and, and DeSoto, like at the time that we were doing a bunch of these creative church plants, there were, we, there really weren't many creative, fresh expression type things happening in the United States. And some of us were starting to figure some things out. So we wanted to get that out there, I think in part two, because I always had a sense and, and the others have said similar things in their own settings is that like, I knew if union worked, it would make it easier for other creative new church starts and expressions of church to to get a you know the possibility of trying something. And I also knew if, if we tanked, it would be a lot harder for others too. So I'm really, really grateful and amazed that, that to be a part of a cohort of folks that, that somehow made some things last. And not that something has to last in order to be good, by the way. A lot of things are really, really good and, and temporary. And that's okay. Most things that are really good are temporary in, in some yeah. in some respect. You know, there's in some measure of time, yeah. Yeah, because it's contextual to where it, you know when it happens. We are a bundle of assumptions, those of us that are church leaders. Many of those assumptions carried with us for centuries, but not always assumptions that are core to our mission. And it gets all tangled up. Yeah. It gets all tangled up. One of Absolutely. one of my understandings or about innovation is that usually there is some assumption that is being removed from the equation. Yeah. That, that we've always assumed you got to do this, this, this. And what, what if you didn't do that, that, that? What if you remove that assumption? What would it look like? That's kind of overgeneralizing maybe in terms of a de- definition. But when you were working this, this experimental ministry in Dallas, were there any assumptions that just sort of go with the understanding of kind of how we do church that you stopped assuming oh yeah all sorts of them like that worship attendance should be our fundamental metric for success that's a big assumption yeah and it's pretty core it's pretty core to our culture yeah right whether we name it or not it's one of the key assumptions we have in the church and i think with that is then the assumption that worship is why the church exists right because like i think worship attendance could be a key performance indicator but at the end of the day, at least if we follow the mission of the United Methodist Church to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, like 
the end result, the the thing we should really be figuring out how to measure is the transformation of the world. That's like the end of the mission statement, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's not, it's not the mission of the United Methodist Church is to get as many butts and seats as possible. If you start breaking that down, then worship has to serve a deeper end. Like it isn't fundamentally wrong to want to have a robust worship service with lots of people there. But I always press the question to church planners and others like, to what end are you having a worship gathering, right? For what purpose? Is it to make disciples? Is it to train leaders? Is it to empower people who have been disenfranchised? Is it to offer forgiveness to those who are racked by guilt? Like, there are a lot of different possible ends or outcomes of a worship service, but I think we just kind of do it for its own sake, and then that's oftentimes when it feels flat, and and it falls down. And it's also when communities lose any interest in supporting the church. Right. So like my wife is a pastor for Oaklawn United Methodist Church here in the city of Dallas, which has taught me as much about innovation as my time at Union has, especially for a very traditional appearing church in a very traditional building to do incredible ministry. And part of what they've done is they've become city leaders on caring for unsheltered neighbors and on caring for refugees who are coming through the city of Dallas. And what's happened, and they sit in the heart of like the neighborhood, historic neighborhood in Dallas, um, Texas. What's happened is is that the businesses that all surround Oakland and community organizations that surround Oakland, they might not give two shits about the church as an institution or church attendance or things like that, but they do care about unsheltered neighbors because the Oakland neighborhood has been a place of sanctuary for over a hundred years, not just the LGBTQ folks, but before it was a sanctuary for them, it was a part of Little Mexico in Dallas, and before that it was Little Jerusalem, and before that it's where the medical district was, and before that it was a Freedman's town. I mean, it's like, it has always been this place of sanctuary. And so the bar owners and the and the, and the restauranteurs and, and the community organizations and the hotels in the neighborhood, they see Oak Lawn actually caring for folks who have been marginalized. And they go like, I'll support that. Right. There's this guy named Lee Darty who is a communist atheist on a good day. He owns a bar down the street and will never go to worship in a church. That's just not his thing. But he will encourage people to support Oak Lawn. He will organize folks to serve meals there. And it's because what Oak Lawn cares about is something that the neighborhood cares about. And so the neighborhood is willing to care about Oak Lawn. So, you know, I don't know the term conventional church. I don't know. I mean, if they sit in rows and look and single direction on Sunday between the hours yeah. of 9 and 12. Maybe that's conventional. But Oak Lawn sure. is an example of a conventional church that's leaning well into the 21st century and into its ministry moment. Yeah. Okay, so your ministry, when you were at Union, you were across town sort of from them, and then yeah. you moved, and then you were on the same property across a parking lot. Yeah. Was there a synergy there being attached, or not attached to, but in partnership, in proximity to a more conventional kind of church that looked like a church and act like a church, but was was really in the game in terms of community connections? Was that helpful? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are times that both Union and Oakland are able to advocate for things in the city together because they share common interests. There's a lot of organic synergy that takes place with some folks who have kind of naturally aged out of the ministries at, mm-hmm. at Union, which continues to focus on folks in their 20s and a little bit beyond, maybe, who then find themselves looking for things that come with a more traditional church and connect in there because of reputation and from shared involvement, right? Like when Oakland United Methodist Church was overnight emergency shelter, 
there are times that someone in their 20s is more likely to volunteer for a 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. shift than other age demographics might. And so it creates an additional volunteer pool. And yeah, there's a lot of a lot of overlap between the two shared facilities. It's worked really well. If your focus was 20-somethings and, a, and almost a decade passed, the 20-somethings became 30-somethings. And you talk about the fact yeah. that they, they sort of graduated out. They kind of went on to other things. Some of them stayed around. But your focus was still 20-somethings. And yet, that's a, yeah. that's a half-generation difference, which today is a lot because we have a lot of technology yeah. that changes and how we're formed with that as we grow up and so forth. So did the work really change over a decade? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I felt it a lot. It, and it was kind of one of these things I talk about is like, I kept getting older, but the congregation stayed the same age. And so I had to start working a lot harder to care about the shit they cared about. Uh-huh. Like, I, I definitely noticed the generational shift taking place. And part of why I left when I did, there are really three key reasons why I you know, decided it was time for me to step away from Union and turn it over to other folks. And it's in the hands of Katie Newsom now, who is an absolutely amazing pastor who went through the ordination process with um, Union as her church. But I had an awareness that like, if Union was to continue to be innovative, the founder, no matter how well-grounded I might be or not be, <laughs> like I couldn't stay too long because otherwise we would start recycling old solutions. Or when something wasn't working, there'd be all the temptations to go back to the way we had done things early on. Or, but the generations had shifted. Like there's, there's a change. And I didn't want to stand in the way of continued innovation, because then it wouldn't really be living with the vision that I have always had for Union, and that Union's always had for itself. Yeah, that was one of the key reasons why I wanted to step away, was to give space for that. In a connectional denomination, it's hard for very distinctive ministries, some would call them weird, but very distinctive ministries (laughs) to find their next leaders. Yeah, because we we work especially if we work in terms of an appointive process for pastors, we sort of have a pool of people who they're, we're, they're not as generic as they used to be. Good, thank goodness. But nonetheless, right, they aren't created for union coffee. Right. I mean, they aren't formed for that. When they go through board of ordained right. ministry and everything, they, seminary and all, they're imagining mo- for the most part different kind of ministry. Now, the new pastor at Union, she came up through Union. Yeah. So, so I mean, that that was helpful. But was there any struggle with the powers that be, with the bishop and so forth, in terms of, of appointing somebody there that would get it? I was, I was really grateful for my district superintendent, who is Deborah Hobbs Mason, as well as the bishop and the cabinet, as we were navigating that transition, because they identified very early on, like, we understand that union is different, and that you know, you, Mike, and your SPRC or equivalent of that should probably have a larger voice and play a bigger role than the typical congregation might otherwise. And it wasn't that we got to like pick or choose or anything like that, but but they did acknowledge that union is is unique. And so uh, they, they work closely with us. One of the other things that union had going for it, which I think is really important for creative spaces, is, is to always just be developing pipeline of leaders. Because if you're doing something creative that's working, you want to send leaders out to as many places as you can so that whatever cool DNA you're developing spreads, you know? And so, I mean, in Union's 10 years now of ministry, I think we've had nine candidates for ordained ministry. Wow. Which is pretty unheard of. And one of our fundamental metrics of success was how many leaders are we developing? And 
sending out from our work, that are taking the leadership skills they develop at unit and applying it beyond our walls, whether in religious or non-religious circles alike. And so that ended up making it more likely that someone like Katie would, would develop through and be able to take the reins. And she's done amazing work. The metric of how many leaders are we developing to send out sounds more like the metrics we see in the Gospels than the attendance at each miracle or, or whatever, you know? Yeah. We actually kind of ditched the language of talking about raising disciples. We were much more interested in cultivating apostles. Oh. And the oh. difference for us was that like a disciple learns a way and follows in a way, an apostle learns a way and takes it to another spot. And that was much closer to our call. And we weren't just interested in developing leaders and apostles, but but the ones that the church wasn't normally looking to, or even society wasn't looking to, right? So at the time that I left, I don't know what the demographics are now, but at the time that I left, 48% of our leaders were persons of color, 67% were women, roughly 70% identified on the LGBTQ spectrum, 85% were under the age of 35. Right, that is not a cross section that is typically being empowered and put into leadership roles, and so that was really a, a fundamentally important thing for us. There was another one of the reasons why I stepped away, was you know first was I was getting older and it was getting harder to to adapt to things as well as figure out what you know changes needed to happen. But secondly, was I came to this recognition that, that gosh, like union was the kind of place that would gladly follow the lead of someone who wasn't a straight cisgendered white guy. And Union is a really good church. <laughs> and so there's a realization to me, like, whose leadership am I standing in the way of? And who could be stepping into the space and taking it in a new direction, knowing that Union would gladly follow? And not that they're, like, eager to ditch me or anything like that. But, yeah, that was, that was another part of the realization for me. Do you think that churches like Union, especially given the nature of the people that are coming together there, that are being equipped, empowered, and sent out from there. What, they're certainly teaching us something about the emerging 21st century church, but what, what might one or two of those things be that they're teaching us, that, they're, that they taught you? Mm. I'll go to one of the more painful places, because that's generally more helpful. Um, <laughs> I think, and, and we don't go to those places very often. I mean, I talked about the number of candidates for a day ministry that we had. Their success rate through the process is sad. Not because they weren't talented, not because the church didn't need them, but because some of them became very disillusioned and others were treated with inordinate suspicion. Like there's this one candidate who was one of the most talented people I've ever had. She interned with me for a while and was one of those folks that I kind of got the sense of like, well, someday I'm going to work for you and I'm, I'll be happy with it. Like you're, <laughs> you're much better at this than I am. And she went to seminary and I was in the district committee on ordained ministry serving on it for one of her interviews. I think it was for certification. And there's this kind of like last throwaway question at the end. She had slayed, I mean, done really well in the room. And she was asked this question by the district superintendent you're young, you're incredibly talented. Why why serve as an elder in the United Methodist Church or pursue ordination in the Methodist Church? And she said, she paused for a second, and then she said, you know, a lot of folks look at the Methodist Church right now, and it was 2019 or so, a lot of folks look at the Methodist Church right now, and they see a dumpster fire. But I, I see a burning bush. And she had these tears in her eyes, and... um 
said, this is like a Holy Saturday moment for the United Methodist Church, and I want to be a part of resurrection work. Mm. I'm here for it. And this room full of older pastors who are sitting on decom, like all of them are tearing up and some of them are just outright crying. Because like, here's this young hope for the church that sees that in the church. And um, for various reasons, quite honestly, as a church that's not getting its act together, not listening enough to where we should be listening and moving fast enough, she withdrew from the ordination process a year ago. And like something about that burning bush went out for her. And that makes me really sad. And I think that there is much more listening that the powers that be need to do to folks who are truly on the fringes and the edges of the church, who have a lot of wisdom to share with us if we would just listen and be willing to follow their lead. Well, there's two directions we could take this conversation from there. <laughs> and it's and sometimes when I come to a fork in the road, I just like to try both both streets. So the first thing <laughs> that I'm going to pick up from that little anecdote is to wonder if there's a connection between this reality and the job that you just took. Yeah. With higher education and ministry, which is thinking at a little higher altitude about candidacy processes and how we develop pastors. Yeah, I mean, the reason I, there are a couple of reasons why I was really excited to take the job at the General Board of Higher Education and Ministry. One is that I work in the innovation department, which means every morning I wake up and I go like, there's an innovation department in the Methodist church. And then I go like, I get to work there. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty great. The other reason is I feel like general board of higher education and ministry has some of the most effective levers to transform the church. I think that licensed local pastors and course of study are critical to the future of the United Methodist church and our ability to deliver outstanding contextual ministry. Amen, amen, and amen to that. And so I am eager to be a part of that kind of work. And I also feel like the ordination process is one that could inspire and could develop outstanding candidates for ministry in higher ed. I mean, to think about like the roots of the Methodist movement were in knowledge and vital piety. And like it was in that weird garden of cross-pollination that, that the Methodist movement was born, you know? And so, like, here we have this agency that sits at the intersection of, of the church and, and and learning, and, oh my gosh, can we do great things there? <laughs> and, and so I get thrilled about that. Plus, throw in the global presence that GBHM has and what we can learn. Man, like, it's, I'm really excited to be there. And so, the, the first thing that really drew me to that work is this is where I feel like some of the greatest possible change in the church can happen is in an organization like GBHEM. And so I'm thrilled to be a part of that kind of work. And then, and then the second thing is again, like a, a bit sadder for me is, you know, I'm a fourth generation Methodist pastor. Um, my wife is a sixth generation Methodist pastor uh, between our two families. We've been a part of six different denominations that have all fueled into this United Methodist thing. None of our children are named Wesley, by the way. Uh, but, you know, if one of my kids came up and said, like, you know what, I want to be a Methodist pastor, I'd be really worried for them. We don't treat them well. We don't tend to the well-being of our pastors uh, the way that we ought to. And uh, and I mean that as a denomination. I mean that as local congregations. Um, I would be worried for them. I would be worried if my kids were to step into that. And so maybe, maybe through this work, I can be a part of folks who 
make it so that like if my kids or maybe if my grandkids were to say like you know what, i don't want to be a methodist pastor i'd be like i am so excited for you and not just for what you could do for the church because right now i feel like my responses would be consistently be like i'm excited about what you can do for the church are you sure you want this for you well on that point that sort of gets us on the other street i have a sense that discipleship or apostleship apostlehood mm-hmm. that this whole idea it is changing the way we develop people as Jesus followers is changing a little bit. Maybe you see this that it's not about getting people mature enough to help support the institutional expressions. The bigger question is how can we make you the best you that God created you to be and you can find the right yeah. the right space, the right institutional expression in order to continue, continue to live out the call that we've nurtured in this space, whether it's at home or it's at Union Coffee or wherever the case may be. But it's not – it seems like that's a shift. Mm-hmm. It may be a very subtle shift, but, but that it, it's a shift toward how can we develop you. Yeah. I feel like forever in the church, the the hot button thing has been vocation, right? Like Lily's been funding money for vocation forever, for decades. We've been we've been talking about vocation, 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 and I feel like most of that conversation has been how we fit people into our preassumed notions about what vocation is, and then we'll talk about like really radical, broad sense of like your vocation could be anything. And then we lose our grounding, <laughs> right? And we no longer tap into the resources. But the reality is that there are some really incredible resources for vocational discernment within the church and religious traditions forever that, that I feel like we don't touch nearly often enough. And some of it's in diverse expressions like social enterprise and how it is that, I mean, like, you know, really cool monasteries that brewed beer or made really good cheese. Let's talk about cheese because cheese isn't as sexy as beer, right? Like made a really good cheese. They <laughs> some of them would talk about they would use the cheese making process as the way that they would form their monks religiously too. You know, like that's social enterprise. And that's a that's a different sort of way of vocational formation. Or or if we start thinking about the role of pilgrimage, which we have totally left behind in in the broader church, of what it means to actually like leave home and journey for a month on end and walk and like what you learn along that way. There's they're much broader tools for vocational discernment than what we're using right now. But I totally agree with what you're saying. And it, it actually aligns critically with a lot of the, the core theology that we outlined at Union that structured our ministry, which was that we didn't open Union assuming that we were bringing God into the neighborhood or Jesus into the lives of the people who walk in our doors. We assumed that God is already at work in the neighborhood. Jesus is already at work in the lives of the people who walk in our doors. You know, we might talk about that as provenient grace. And our job was to figure out, like, what is God up to in the people we encountered, and how do we cultivate that? And as you were cultivating that, nine different folks along the way began exploring ordained ministry Yeah, in the, in the United Methodist Church, yeah. and they, they met a denomination that didn't yet quite have the capacity to go with them on the journey they were going on, or, or what? They, it wasn't ready. Yeah. It wasn't ready for them. It wasn't going to make itself ready for yeah. them. So this is not unusual. This happens a lot of places, especially where young adults are coming alive to the, the movement of the spirit. Sometimes older, more established forms of church are not the places that are going to be able to appreciate them. Yeah. So for young churches, mm-hmm. 
and I think I think the the hope of the world is young churches. They have to think kind of beyond denomination in terms of the possibilities, because those nine people they may not all settle into the point of experience because of any number of things. It may not bend enough to appreciate really who they are, or or it may flush them out of the system. But they've got a future. They've got gifts. They've got kingdom possibilities. It's going to go somewhere. Yeah. Well, and I, I think, yeah, there has to be thought beyond that in that it isn't just successful if someone becomes a pastor in the United Methodist Church, right? Success at Union also looked like someone who got involved in our storytelling stage, eventually served on our board, launched a new initiative out of Union, and then used those skills to run the first and only in the state of Texas of its time, now like Black woman-owned, fully functional marketing design company. And she attributes a lot of the success that she's had in creating Brass Hack Collective, and the person is Keisha Whaley, she attributes a lot of the success to the time that she spent at Union, developing these skill sets, right? And that's just as successful for us as someone who comes out of Union and becomes a church planner within the United Methodist Church, and we've produced some of those too. And, you know, so it's looking beyond that as qualifying for success. I would say too, with, and I'm going to come across as a total, like, I don't know, institutional wonk or whatever, but I think there is that urge within the Methodist system itself, too. It's just figuring out how to really live into it, right? Like, when we created diaconate ministers once upon a time, and then eventually when that shifted into deacons, that was this acknowledgement that, that people have a calling to connect the church and the rest of the world. I don't think that's best lived out when someone becomes a deacon because they want to do youth ministry or music ministry. I think that's like... A friend of mine, Diane Dyson, is a is a nurse in New Jersey who is on a frontline COVID ward, and she's Reverend Diane Dyson because she's a deacon. In our system is this urge for a more expansive understanding of vocation. <laughs> and if we could maybe get to the point that we stop treating those folks like deacons and licensed local pastors as second and third class orders of ministry, and then laity as like fourth class orders of ministry. Then maybe we can we can really live into that that urge that is in our DNA for a more expansive understanding of vocation, but we still treat elders as you know kind of like up here at the top. Okay, that is a strong word to people that are influencers and leaders within Methodism to do a deep rethink of how we approach ministry, yeah, and how we appreciate the the beautiful servants that do ministry within our midst. There's a very eclectic audience for this this podcast. What about church planters? What would be the the thing you would want to for them to take away from this conversation? Oh, or think or thinking about it or go or getting close, you know? Yeah, I would say like don't don't miss the wonder of it. You know, like the first commandment that God gives to creation is be fruitful and multiply. Like the only thing we know God as is this, is this at, at that point in the Bible is the one who makes things. And then God turns to the things that God made and says like, okay, it's your turn. Creating something new, whether it's a church, whether it's a business, whether it's a ministry, whether it's a work of art, like that is, that is God's stuff. And, and that is one of the best seats in the kingdom. And so like, don't, don't for a second lose the wonder of it because church planning is also one of the hardest, most difficult things that you can do. And if you for a second miss the wonder and the joy and the awe 
of what you get to do, like it'll crumble, you'll fall. I don't know if it'll crumble, you'll crumble, like you'll fall apart. <laughs> so I think like that's the probably the best bit of advice I have after not just planning church, but I think being kind of a serial entrepreneur. Wow. What about people who uh, have a real passion for creativity, for reinventing, for flipping church, for breaking paradigms, but who are sometimes discouraged by the resistance of the system? What would you say to them? I mean, similar, but I might I might go to the end of the Bible. If they're like that first group, I, I want to point to Genesis, and that, that last group, I want to point to to Revelation, where. Once again, to see the wonder of it, where, where Jesus is like, behold, I am making all things new. And the all that Jesus uses in that is, is like the, is the all, all. It's like panta, I think, is the Greek word. And it means everything. And there isn't a little little footnote that says, like, except for the Methodist church, because you guys clearly got, got it all right. <laughs> right? Like, all things new means the church also. It means me also. It means you also. It means, like, all things new. And so when you're a part of that, like you're, you are a part of, of revelation work. And again, like don't miss the angels going like, ah, and like the light shining down from heaven in those moments. And in some ways that's harder than starting something new. Many times it is. And, and I think with that, I would also say is like, because I've watched up close my wife, Rachel Bachman, do that work at Oakland United Methodist church. You'll lose a lot along the way. A lot. When my wife got to Oakland Methodist Church, and then God really put a lot of unsheltered neighbors there to teach Rachel and that church what it looks like to actually do ministry. There are probably 75 or so in worship on any given Sunday, and now five of them are attending worship on any given Sunday at Oakland Methodist Church five or so years later. But more people are in worship now than were there when she got there. But it's a real hard turn. Like, it's a lot of loss before you build up to that. It takes a lot of listening, a lot of conviction that you're following the right direction, a lot of doing work that folks are really going to rally around. I'll ask you for one more audience that I know listens to this podcast. It's people who really want to do church outside the walls. Yeah. I mean, really outside the walls. I mean, and they may have connections with Oakland, but they really want to be out of the walls. Is there a place in United Methodism for people that are just drawn to neighbors and want to develop them, but maybe not develop them into churches that look like church back inside of the walls? The field preachers at heart. The field preachers at heart. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, campus ministries are those places across the connection. You know, some of them may have buildings, but that's rarely the root or the core of what they do. I will say, too, like, there is a real value in having some sort of building or structure. I'll just say, like, man, we had we had a period of about a year and a half where we were between locations at Union. And before we did that, we got all excited about being in the wilderness and being out, like, you know, and, oh, God does all sorts of refining work in the wilderness, and it's great to be wandering. And we, like, glazed over the parts that, like, yeah, wandering's really f- hard it's um <laughs> it's really difficult people are kind of hardwired to a place and i don't know that that place it, well yeah i don't think that that place needs to be a traditional building or a traditional church structure but i think there is value to space and that people can attach meaning to it i agree with that i think by walls maybe it's not physical space but maybe the walls of the the institution and the, the walls of churches we understand it yeah yeah 
there's a lot of young adults that are really drawn they're really drawn outside those walls and i i just wonder if there's going to be to go back to this apostles idea a lot of folks that are just going to be basically leaving the the center gathering and connection yeah. and that a lot of methodism is going to be kind of be off of the map of what of our connection yeah i mean i think i think so and i think there will there will always be traditional expressions of church and we need them there will always be maybe neo-traditional expressions of church like Oakland, and we need them. There will always be these kind of hybrid expressions of church like Union, which is very much a you know cross-pollination space. And then there are going to be these other things that we haven't figured out yet. And we're going to need that. <laughs> we're going to need all those things. And I mean, I can think of lots of things that function outside the norm of how church is done. But I'm really excited about what's next. Mike, I would love to, if we had more time, I would be chasing down the, the, the trail of this whole idea of disciples and apostles, but maybe another conversation. That would be a lot of fun. Sounds good. Yeah, I love that. It'd be fun. You're a busy guy, and it took a while for us to be able to do this today. <laughs> but um, thanks for making time to, um, to talk, to share, to reflect. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate it. I'm always happy to support stuff that you're up to and, and uh, really grateful for the work that you do. Thanks. Thanks. Friends, this is the Church is Changing podcast. I'm Paul Nixon. I'm visiting with Michael Bachman, who is working for Higher Education and Ministry, an agency of the United Methodist Church in the field of innovation, reflecting on a decade of really innovative leadership as a pastor. And Michael, thanks. It's great for you to be with us. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Church is Changing is a ministry of the United Methodist Church. Church is Changing podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.